Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Facial recognition technology is becoming commonplace. From face ID on phones to security at airports, our faces are regularly scanned to verify who we are. But not all software is created equal. And studies have shown human error creeps in, either in the way the software is trained or the way it's used, ways that often end up harming people of color. Companies all over the world are selling facial recognition software to law enforcement agencies and others, often in places where there are no or few regulatory limits. That's what we'll be talking about next on Forum, right after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Facial recognition software is used by government employment agencies to verify an applicant's identity, by landlords to monitor tenants, by law enforcement to identify and prosecute suspected criminals. But what happens when the software gets it wrong, or the humans using the software get it wrong, or is the net result of all the software tracking our every movement for all sorts of purposes contributing to a kind of surveillance state? What should we be asking people, our local, regional, and federal governments, to be doing or not doing to regulate its use? Well, we've got a great panel here today to talk about all of these questions. Matt Cagle, Technology and Civil Liberties Attorney with the ACLU. Brian Hofer, Chair and Executive Director of Secure Justice. And Tracy Rosenberg, Advocate with Oakland Privacy and Executive Director of Media Alliance. Matt, kick us off here. For the benefit of people who are just now having their coffee, explain how this technology works. Great. So thanks for having me this morning, uh, Rachel and, and KQED. Uh, facial recognition is basically a technology that can recognize people's you know, innate features, uh, our faces, and, and these technologies are used to identify who we are, but they can also be used to track where we go and where we're located. Uh, you can leave your cell phone at home if you don't want to be tracked by the cell phone company, but you can't leave your face at home if you don't want to be tracked when you walk to a protest or when you walk past a, a doctor's office or a place of worship. So when governments have this kind of technology, it massively expands their ability to automate how they track us and how they know where we go and who we associate with. Um, this is a really dangerous technology in government hands. Uh, we've already seen three black men uh, falsely accused of crimes they didn't commit because the technology erred 
and humans erred when they were using the technology. Um, that should never be happening in our society, especially right now where you have movements calling for uh, unjust systems to be broken down and changed. So these are the kinds of technologies in government hands that are actually entrenching those unjust systems. And that's why you're seeing across the United States uh, communities rising up and saying, we want to take this technology off the table. We want to have a conversation about real public safety uh, that doesn't involve a dangerous new technology in government hands. And so San Francisco, uh, the ACLU, we led a coalition that passed the first ban on the government use of this technology in 2019. And the sky hasn't fallen. It has helped spur a nationwide conversation about how people can decide the role that technology has in their lives. And, and, and focusing on government use has been really uh, a sort of watershed moment in the United States, uh, something that our racial justice partners and our civil rights partners have been a really key part of these last few years. Tracy, let me ask you this. Are, are we fetishizing this this one kind of technology when there are so many ways today that, that companies and government agencies are tracking us? Well, it's certainly true that facial recognition, just because of its sort of dystopian science fiction categories, um, you know, characteristics, really sort of catalyzes a whole bunch of larger fears that people have about what it means to to have <clears throat> to have an overly encroaching surveillance state as matt mentioned you can put away your cell phone you can take a number of precautions but your face is the one thing that you simply can't get rid of and you can't replace it um, so when we talk about facial recognition, what we're talking about is sort of the most frightening and personal and invasive kind of surveillance technology that has been developed to date. So we're not fetishizing it, but we're putting it forward as an example of where things can go if we don't get proper regulation in, in place. And if we don't start paying attention to the downsides of these kinds of technologies when they are in ubiquitous use. Brian, I, I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about your story. What, what is it you do uh, as an activist in this space? Well, I advocate for legislation and guardrails uh, like these other guests do as well. I also chair the City of Oakland's Privacy Commission, where we've implemented a vetting framework like San Francisco and Berkeley and many Bay Area neighbors have uh, to see if we could implement guardrails to use certain technologies in an appropriate manner um, without creating a negative impact to, to our civil liberties and privacy interests. Uh, we've also drawn a line in the sand like San Francisco and Berkeley and, and now many others across the nation that's saying some of these technologies uh, just aren't appropriate. The community has decided that, uh, you know, they're too invasive with the, the speed of automation, uh, the supercomputing powers and data aggregation that's going on, that some of these technologies, uh, especially with the mission creep aspect of ever-expanding use, uh, that we just don't want to let um, certainly those uh, with police power uh, use these technologies and perhaps not others as well. Uh, so we try to maintain civilian oversight um, and just really reach out with everybody in the community to see, you know, where do we draw these lines? Where's our comfort level in our respective jurisdictions? 
um, and then craft policies or legislation around that to regulate it. Well, well, Matt, you know, as Brian's talking, I, I know that uh, despite all the work that, that you, you folks and others have been doing, uh, it, it's still just, what, a, a couple dozen cities and other jurisdictions that have put any kind of limits on this technology. Meanwhile, worldwide, there are hundreds of companies that sell this software to all sorts of organizations. It's 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 a nationwide movement we're actually seeing here in the United States. Uh, I believe over 19 cities in the United States have decided to take this technology off the table for government use. And uh, that is very unprecedented in the work I've been doing for the last 10 years in the surveillance space to see uh, civil rights organizations, organizations working on behalf of everyone from unhoused people uh, to um, Asian Americans banding together to say, actually, we want to be the ones who decide the role of technology in our lives. And this technology is too dangerous in government hands and it should be um, banned in our in our cities. And so I, I'm, I'm really impressed at the sort of breadth of the, the coalitions and the movement you're seeing come together. And it's having a real impact beyond the cities that have passed bans. Um, just last week, the company Amazon, who actually sells a facial recognition system, um, announced that they would be indefinitely stopping sales of that technology to police. So that decision is not Amazon's sort of corporate goodwill. That is not Amazon deciding to sort of do charity on the behalf of society. That is the direct result of the sort of movement they're seeing and the way in which they're understanding that communities um, want to be in control of these technologies. Communities don't want to be washed over with these technologies that when they're operated by governments actually entrench and further, you know, create systems of injustice. And so Amazon has done that. Microsoft has done a version of that as well, saying we're not going to be selling the police and we're calling on more companies to follow suit. So, yes, it's it's about 20 cities nationally, It's but it's 20 cities covering millions of people. And it's having ripple effects in the corporate world as well, where this technology is actually being made. I should point out that Forum did reach out to companies like Amazon and Microsoft to join the show, but we didn't hear back. As we know, in Silicon Valley, a lot of companies much prefer to have people read the blog post than than to put somebody up on the firing line, as it were. Um, Tracy, you know, it's it's been, what, more than five years now since uh, we've seen some groundbreaking research from a variety of academic I'm thinking Joy Bulamwini in in New York, demonstrating how algorithmic bias, how a failure to train the technology on black faces uh, and and female faces especially uh, can lead to real world consequences. Has this industry uh, worked in good faith to fix the problem? No, I think we've actually seen somewhat the opposite, which is that the industry has largely been lethargic in its response. And we really have no reason to believe that the error rate, which was identified at MIT, and it's important to say that it wasn't 1% or 2%, it was as high as 33% for three very specific groups people with darker skin tones, women, and young people. And if you put those three together, that's over half the population. So it's significant to say that at this point in time, not only is this technology scary, it is 
literally so flawed that it doesn't work. We're discussing concerns on forum today about facial recognition technology with some civil liberties advocates, some people who are at the table discussing regulation, especially with uh, local municipalities around the country. What are your concerns about facial recognition technology? Do you think law enforcement in particular should be allowed to use the technology? Call and join the conversation. We're 866-733-6786. Now that you have your phone up and scanning your face, that's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, monitoring those accounts. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Brian, when when people call you, when when policy, uh, you know, crafters call you and they say, hey, we want to begin to look at how to regulate this technology in in our locale. What are some of the things they're asking about? How do do you go about thinking about this? Well, I think when I get called for help, it's usually some sort of scandal, um, uh, civil liberties harm, or or perhaps, you know, crazy budget overrun uh, from inappropriate use of technology or, or certain factors weren't considered during the upfront process. We kind of tend to release things into the wild and then worry about the guardrails later. Uh, so, so that's usually the type of question uh, I, I get, panic. What do we do? Uh, we've been trying to educate people to think before they act, to do an upfront analysis and, and consider the potential impact before we go release it out into the public. And I'm so going to I'm going to have you hold that thought, uh, Brian. I've, I totally unfairly uh, asked you a big question just before the break. We're talking about facial recognition technology with Brian Hofer, Matt Cagle, and Tracy Rosenberg. Stay with us. We'll be back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking with civil liberty advocates about facial recognition technology. Brian Hofer, chair and executive director of Secure Justice. Um, you know, we were talking just before the break. Five, ten years ago, a city could feel like it was getting out in front of the issues uh, raised by facial recognition technology. But now the horse is out of the barn, the cat's out of the bag. This thing is in use. Um, You know, where do you even begin to have that conversation? Or is this really something that needs to be talked about in Congress and in the White House? Well, we certainly have a chance to continue doing something as the legislative record shows. Uh, I agree with the comments of the other speakers that we have uh, a critical mass building. Uh, um, Part of our job is to even be um, 
better at raising awareness and educating people about the harms of these technologies. That is an area perhaps we need to uh, improve. Uh, but we've been doing a decent job about it, as shown by the number of jurisdictions that have enacted bans against this type of technology. Uh, I don't think it's too late, uh, it, especially on the government side. The genie wasn't out of the bottle. You know, we preemptively moved in to start uh, enacting bans before the technology could really spread. I, I agree on the consumer side. Uh, things are moving very fast in a very unregulated world. Uh, certainly, um, federal legislation would help. Of course, I always get nervous when proposed legislation is coming from Amazon and Microsoft lobbyists. Uh, there's always a great potential that it gets watered down and, and we don't get very meaningful legislation. Um, but the lack of federal leadership, uh, you know, whether it's COVID and a, a number of other subjects has really hurt us uh, in this specific area. So so we've got some great comments coming in. Uh, Tracy, maybe you want to take this next one from Daniel, who writes, we talk about the public sector, like police, et cetera, using this technology. What about the private sector? They're free to use it, and they are more responsible in implementing this and are already gross, grossly infringing on our rights. Well, that's absolutely true. And the only uh, municipality that has taken that on to date is the city of Portland, and it's important to say that Portland has put into place a ban on facial recognition technology used by private actors in public spaces. Uh, No other jurisdiction as of yet has sort of met that challenge, but that said, Portland has kind of put it out there. So there is certainly the opportunity to regulate and to legislate private use. It's just a question really of cities and counties and states sort of walking up to that plate, which they haven't done as of yet. And I agree that whenever you are in the private sector, a number of checks and balances that exist in the public sector, such as they are, not even those kinds of guardrails are are there. So you potentially have sort of an open channel for the kinds of civil rights abuses that ha- that have been noted. Joel tweets, oversight is great. However, the people that want limits on this technology will be the first to complain that the police aren't doing enough to catch someone who committed a crime. Any thoughts on that, Matt? I'd say that there's this sort of science fiction that the technology companies would like us to believe that new surveillance systems will make us safer. safer. And, and there's the reality, which is that facial recognition doesn't make us safer. Uh, this is a technology that in, in practice and in reality has been used to falsely arrest at least three black men. Those are just the stories we know about. And we know that Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, has deployed facial recognition to scan photos of immigrants in the United States to assist their deportation efforts. We've also seen it been used to identify people exercising their First Amendment rights at protests. And so I think it's really important to sort of zoom out away from the, the marketing jargon that we might hear from, from technology companies and to really look at what's happening on the ground. And that is this technology, like many surveillance systems, is being aimed at marginalized communities in the United States. And that's why you're sort of seeing the response you're seeing when it comes to government use, which is that we, communities are saying, we want to have a conversation about public safety 
that doesn't involve sort of marketing and new technologies from these, uh, these, these surveillance vendors. We want to be talking about how can we actually invest in our communities to focus on real public safety, to focus on ensuring there are resources to make people healthier and safe, safer. And that's, I think, a really great sort of turn we're seeing in the conversation around this surveillance technology. Brian, you know, I've, I've been uh, chomping at the bit here to, to have you tell us your story about being pulled over as a result of maybe not facial recognition technology, but a form of surveillance technology. Sure. And I'm going to piggyback a little bit on the, on the previous comment you just heard. You know, we have uh, this belief that technology always works and is accurate. One of my advisors, uh, Jumana Musa, calls it the scientific veneer of infallibility. You know, we were told fingerprints were unique to us. Well, actually, no, they're not. The FBI recently admitted hair microscopy was a complete fraud, but we've been convicting people based on that for years. Uh, coming home from Thanksgiving, November 2018, my brother and I were detained by the Contra Costa Sheriff's deputies after a license plate reader alert uh, told them that the car I was in was stolen. Uh, it was not. Um, they didn't even bother to check our IDs or ask us any questions. Uh, when I pulled into the parking lot and turned the engine off, turned the lights on, we were in a very well-lit area, which I intentionally parked in. Uh, didn't really matter. They still pulled guns on us. Four people pulled guns on us, uh, pulled us out of the car at gunpoint, illegally searched our car and bags, uh, put a gun to the back of my baby brother's head and threw him on the ground, uh, handcuffed us, put us in separate cars, and then they decided to see uh, who we were at that point. So it was, a, it was a pretty traumatic situation. And in the course of discovery during our lawsuit, you know, I saw what information they had, nothing. They just had an alert. They had no fact pattern, no justification whatsoever to indicate that we were violent, that the original suspected stolen vehicle, which we found out was never stolen, uh, that there was any violence in that, you know, erroneous uh, report. There was nothing that said they should have pulled guns. Um, and as a result, we ended up settling that case out of court. Um, I've been contacted by dozens of people who have shared very similar stories involving guns being pointed at them over an erroneous license plate reader scan. We're talking about facial recognition technology and the way it's been rolled out into our lives, like it or not. What are your concerns about the technology and the regulation thereof or lack thereof? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So, you know, I want to introduce uh, another voice into this conversation, Dan Ho, who is a law professor at Stanford University. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Dan, tell us a little bit about the, the kind of research you've been conducting lately. Sure. Um, well, uh, we started thinking about uh, uh, this issue really uh, at Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered AI, where I'm an associate director, really when there were some uh, sort of uh, uh, eye-opening claims by a company named Clearview AI in early 2020, uh, which had scraped about 3 billion uh, images from Facebook, YouTube, and Venmo, 
um, and claimed that it had 100% accuracy in facial recognition uh, uh, technology. And, and I'm just uh, going to stop us... you there, 100% accuracy. Yeah, that <laughs> so, was the claim. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, suffice it to yeah. say that many of us in the academic community who really uh, spend time thinking about this technology, uh, our, our basic reaction was, well, not so fast. Um, uh, there are really serious questions about how well uh, such technology performs when it's uh, tested only on a limited set of imagery when, as you noted at the outset of the hour, it's being deployed across an ever wider range of domains. Um, and so uh, we wrote a, a white paper really from the academic perspective uh, to try to understand how we would even get to a better understanding as this technology is deployed across a wider uh, set of domains of how well uh, it in fact works. You know, one, one of the questions that you, you've been asking in your writing is, you know, how are government agencies deciding what tech to, to use? Tracy, maybe you can pop in here. You know, uh, how are government agencies deciding what technology to use? Well, that's an interesting question. And I think that what we have found is that unless sort of regulation or legislation is sort of put into place that sets up some kind of, you know, process or framework for how these decisions are being made, in general, they're sort of made unilaterally by police chiefs or in some cases, um, other city executives like Department of Transportation or recorders, we're seeing some movements toward facial recognition being used with vital records and other kinds of municipal services. And in a lot of cases, what happens is that a surveillance vendor just kind of walks through the door and talks about sort of their latest and greatest product. If you go, for example, to a conference like the Police Chiefs Association each year, it's basically just this, you know, long pile of exhibit tables of various kinds of surveillance technologies with glossy brochures. And it basically becomes a situation of a surveillance vendor telling a municipal employee, you need this, it will solve all of your problems. And in many cases, these purchases just go forward with really no analysis if the surveillance vendor's claims are true, no uh, look at sort of what are the downsides of the technology, the potential misuse, uh, the potential negative consequences. It just sort of goes through. And in my advocacy work, in many cases, you talk to a city council or a board of supervisors that's supposed to be the final say on how taxpayer monies are spent, and they have no idea what's in use in their departments. They don't know what's been bought. So really, this, this system that's in place now in Oakland and San Francisco and Nashville and a number of other places throughout the country that puts a framework in place is really crucial because otherwise it's basically the Wild West and it's a vendor-driven process rather than one that is looking out for the best interests of the people who are, after all, the objects of this surveillance technology. 
I do want to get to some phone calls, but but first let me bring up a, a comment from Jordan. And Matt, perhaps you want to answer this since it, it just kind of follows right where we are in the conversation. Um, the rhetorical trick of pointing out its few mistakes, say arresting three men, doesn't seem sufficient to throw out the technology technology just because it's not 100% accurate. Nothing is 100% accurate. It seems we need to train the users in how to interpret the technology. That's a, that's a great question. And I think it, 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 it's a reminder that this isn't just about sort of accuracy in the technology. So what we have seen is that uh, many facial recognition systems are less accurate for black skinned people. And that has resulted in the false arrests of at least, we know, three black men uh, life-changing occurrences uh, and, and charges for crimes they didn't commit. But if we zoom out, it's not just actually that the technology is inaccurate. Uh, there's actually just sort of, I would say, at least sort of three levels of racism that are just fundamentally built into facial recognition systems. So first of all, the way they do the matching with these systems is they build giant databases of our faces. Um, all too often, those databases are built on mugshot databases. And if we look at the history of policing in our country and in our communities, those mugshot databases are disproportionately filled with black and brown faces. So when we think about what the technology is looking for in the world, it is um, built atop our existing criminal justice system, which we know suffers from massive issues of racism. Uh, and then it's not just about the technology, it's about how humans are, and themselves use the technology. So even a perfectly accurate system uh, can be abused if a uh, police department is rolling it out in a community um, in ways that we know policing has been done in surveillance systems generally. So the, 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 the gentleman in Michigan, uh, Robert Williams, he was the first person we learned had been falsely arrested for the use of facial recognition systems. Um, that, that false arrest was not solely due to a technolo technology error or to inaccuracy. What we saw there was that humans in the loop made decisions built upon bias that led to his arrest. So it's actually not just about the racism in the technology, it's about the racism in the way that our policing system operates in society. And so that's why you're seeing communities stand back from this and say, what sort of fuel are we pouring on the existing fires in our community by adding in this technology? And this technology may get more accurate someday, but even if it does, it's not going to solve those other problems. It's just going to pour more fuel on that fire that many communities are trying to put out right now that you see a nationwide movement of civil rights partners trying to address right now. Well, let's go to the phones now and three in Belmont. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, so I think that the to dovetail on what we were just saying or hearing about the racism issue, I feel like that's kind of at the heart of, of this conversation. And, you know, we, we have a trend. We want to increase our security. We want to increase technology use. We want to get, um, you know, more accurate policing, arrest everyone that commits every crime. And, you know, the end goal, then, if, we're, if that's the goal, is to, if we're doing on enforcement, is let's just have a police state and, you know, give everyone the death penalty as soon as they commit a crime. I feel like it's fundamentally based on this racist premise that all the people that are committing crimes are inherently bad. So we need to catch them all, jail them all, incarcerate them all. It's not working. Uh, it's intellectually lazy. We're not addressing the fundamental problems here. We keep reaching for technology to increase enforcement and incarceration. We're not doing any poverty alleviation that's meaningful. We're not increasing educational programming. We're not looking at any of the root causes in any meaningful way at a, at a societal governmental level to actually reduce 
crime at its heart. And, and enforcement does not seem like the best way to reduce crime. It seems like common sense to me. It's obviously not to a lot of people. And I feel like it's, again, driven fundamentally by this kind of intellectual laziness, reaching for easy solutions, or what seem like easy solutions, and fundamental racism that the people that are committing crimes are obviously going to commit them no matter what, so we just need to lock them up. We can't prevent the crimes because it's inevitable with this population. Uh, Tracy, do you want to take that one on? Sure. I mean, books have been written, many of them, about the failures of mass incarceration, and the caller is absolutely correct. The U.S. locks up a larger percentage of its population than any other, I guess, Western or what they call developed country in the world, and that has not um, satiated public concerns about public safety. It hasn't solved the problem. We still have crime. So the answer is it doesn't work. And we have to look at other more broader definitions of public safety that basically bring more resources into place to help people not to be in the position where committing a crime seems like the best possible option that they have. So there's no doubt about that. But when we talk about facial recognition, it's sort of clear. I like to go out to sort of, you know, science fiction a bit and, you know, sort of think about a step into the future where you step outside your door and every single time you do so, a camera drops down automatically, a flying camera, because we're in science fiction. Because we're in science fiction. I've, I've got to break in here, uh, Tracy, and tell people we are talking about facial recognition technology here on Forum today. What are your concerns? What are your questions? Call us at 866-733-6786. But whatever you do, stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. And when we last left off, we were talking about a dystopian sci-fi movie that we all appear to be living in. You are welcome to join this conversation by calling 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Professor Dan Ho from Stanford's Institute on Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Is there some kind of positive, mitigating approach that we can take beyond regulation? I'm, I'm thinking, you know, improve training, I- improve the ways that, that academics and, and activists uh, call out the quality of different kinds of software. Um, yeah, it's a great question. We actually convened uh, a workshop uh, here at, at Stanford High that included uh, folks from industry, policymakers, academics, and civil society organizations really to consider that. Um, and uh, 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 to, to go back to this accuracy point, we simply have no guarantees that as this technology moves into different parts of society that it will perform accurately. Performance might be good with nicely cropped, well-lit images, but work extremely uh, poorly on surveillance camera where the face might be a really small part 
of a poorly lit image. And as Matt mentioned earlier, uh, the problem isn't just technical. The same algorithm might be used by one police department that trains detectives on how to use the output and another department that just naively relies on the top match. And what we really came uh, out of that workshop with was a kind of protocol for how uh, uh, we should be thinking about assessing uh, those kinds of weaknesses when no single accuracy metric is going to work. And what we really focused on is that we need, number one, better transparency around the algorithm and particularly literally the underlying imagery. Number two, opening up these kinds of systems for rigorous testing exactly of the kind, Rachel, that you had uh, noted at the outset that Joy Willemwini's work uh, did. Um, and third, uh, demonstrating the performance before a system is adopted in any new context. I, I guess, Matt, what, what Dan seems to be talking about here is a problem that has to be solved at the federal level, right? Because we're still relying on outside researchers to raise the alarm on bad code that is often, you know, um, stuck in a black box, right? Dan didn't use that phrase, but that's exactly what I was thinking of as he was talking. It, it, so many companies have these black boxes. You can't get in there. It's a proprietary secret. What if there were federal regulation to force them to allow people to peek in? So a, those are great points. And as, as Tracy said earlier, part of the reason we're in the situation is that there's a sort of alliance between technology companies and, and police agencies and government agencies more generally, where the technology companies uh, behind closed doors market their technologies uh, and sell them, you know, based on fancy, shiny brochures to, to government agencies. And then they're actually operationalized. They're put out into the wild. And it turns out that the technologies suffer from massive racial bias issues and accuracy issues. It turns out that police departments are using them without any training or without any sort of understanding about how those systems actually function. And then you have sort of systemic problems at police agencies of racism uh, that are fueling the way that these technologies are aimed disproportionately at marginalized communities, disproportionately at communities of color. Um, so that's exactly why you're seeing a national movement building here, where you have now almost 20 cities uh, following in, in San Francisco's uh, following San Francisco's lead that have banned the government use of facial recognition technology and have said, hey, we want to be focusing on a real conversation about public safety uh, and using resources that actually make us safer, right? Not just technologies that companies are trying to uh, make a buck on. And so uh, what that sort of national movement has led to now is that there's actually a, been a bill proposed in both the Senate and, 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 and the House in Congress to impose a nationwide moratorium on the use of facial recognition. So, you know, communities across the, the country, starting in the Bay Area, are acting and taking control of this decision about facial recognition. And now it's really time for Congress to step up and do the right thing. Um, we're at a really key moment where people and, and society are starting to recognize that when governments use this tech, it can really result in making us less safe, uh, entrenching racial injustice. And so now we're hopeful that uh, Congress will actually step up and do the right thing and explore uh, you know, a law that actually presses pause on the use of this technology by governments nationally. Henry has a basic question that I, I think a lot of people have, so I'm going to throw it in here. How are the databases built up? In other words, how do they get pictures of our faces and match them to individuals? Uh, Dan, uh, can you describe that for us? Sure. Um, 
the sort of uh, there's some uh, pretty prototypical sources here from uh, passport uh, photos, DMV records. Uh, um, but then uh, part of the lack of data transparency is that we don't often know entirely where all these uh, images come from. Uh, that takes us to the example of, of sort of Clearview AI, which had scraped 3 billion images, as I mentioned earlier, uh, from the likes of Facebook and YouTube. And so another kind of regulatory proposal that exists out there is really a regulatory proposal around data protections. That is, uh, what is the, the kind of uh, consent required uh, to allow uh, someone's imagery or biometric identifier to enter a database like this? Jean writes, what is the impact of wearing a mask, a face mask, as so many of us have been doing, on the ability to use facial recognition systems? Tracy? Um, there's no doubt that the use of a mask can certainly, to some degree, impact the accuracy of a facial recognition scan, uh, just like uh, lack of light or lack of focus in a surveillance video can also obscure a clear reading by a facial recognition program. But it's important to say that inaccurate reads in this software don't make the problem better. They make the problem worse because they significantly um, increase the chances that the software is going to finger or identify someone as someone that they're not because this already happens with the software on an ongoing basis. Not to steal ACLU's fire, but they did a sort of a, a, a testing process where they stuck pictures of a number of legislatures, both the California state legislature and I believe Congress into Amazon's recognition system. And basically the software identified a significant chunk of both state and federal legislatures as criminals. It, it matched them to a mugshot and said, these are the same people and, and they aren't. So in a sense, when we um, try to game the system to increase the amount of inaccuracies, we put all of ourselves in significantly more danger. Mm. Let's go to the phones again. And John in San Francisco. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm 80 years old. Uh, 40 years ago, I got into a lot of difficulty with drugs and alcohol and was photographed uh, numerous times and did a short stint in a county jail. I haven't been arrested or photographed in, in 40 years. Yet two weeks ago, I'm standing on, on a curb waiting for a taxi cab in front of my hotel directly across the street from the Central Police Station in San Francisco. And all of a sudden, three cop cars, uh, plain, plain clothes cops, pulled in, pushed me, back, uh, told me to get back on the curb. One guy had his gun half out. Another guy had his handcuffs, told me to put my hands behind my back. And uh, you know, I, I asked, "What are you doing? What's, I mean, here's my taxi." And, and and I started to go for the taxi, and one cop yelled, "Let's get out of here!" And and he left. And I'm wondering, could they, they targeted me from 40 years ago uh, from official recognition? It was wrong. Yikes, uh, Brian! Uh, any thoughts on that? Uh, I don't have enough information. 
position to give a definitive answer on I, that question. I, I, do I think- guess, you know, it, it, it's easy to guess, right, that, that possibly there was old photograph, old information that wasn't sort of properly, uh, you know, helping officers put two and two together. Let's see, this is 40-year-old information. Um, and, and, you know, I, I guess maybe my question is, do do we see evidence of really old information making it into the system and staying there forever and uh, not being flagged in a way that sort of helps some of the slower folks using the software figure things out before three cars pull up on a guy who's 80? Yeah, I kind of think that these questions are really answering themselves. Like we're we're talking about all these problems after the technology's already been introduced and used. Um, it, the only way to really improve the accuracy is to have a constant uh, worldwide database always refreshed with new photos. Um, we will all have to be in a perpetual lineup, um, constantly supplying photos to you know those with police power uh, in order to ensure the accuracy uh, of the equipment. Because as you just said, you know, uh, people age, we lose we lose weight, maybe we have a tan one day, uh, we get a tattoo. There's all sorts of variables, and the fact that we're discussing them after the horse has already left the barn uh, is a big problem. And the reason why we've been, we've been saying, you know, shut down the use of this technology. It's just a suggestion, and yet we're arresting people and using force and potentially convicting them and taking away their liberty. You know, uh Kyle writes, are there any laws being passed for private cameras in public spaces? I walk around my extremely low crime neighborhood and a lot of houses have home security systems with cameras monitoring the sidewalks and the street. It really bothers me because the effect is basically constant surveillance by private cameras that are probably not that secure. Anybody want to take that one off? Yeah, sure. This is this is Matt. So um in San Francisco, actually, there's a law uh, that has been on the books since 2019 that requires the community and the board of supervisors to be in the loop about all government uses of surveillance technology. So this law says it draws a line on the use of facial recognition and takes that off the table. But it says for everything else, cameras and the like, that the community and elected leaders have to be in the driver's seat when it comes to these new technologies. Importantly, that law says that when the government reaches to a private surveillance system, say um, uh, uh, cameras around Union Square uh, in San Francisco, uh, that the, the government using those technologies is also covered by this law. And so all too often what we do see and what we've talked about today is that it isn't just government surveillance in a silo and it isn't just technology, private technology in a silo, that the government is often allying themselves with private surveillance systems and exploiting those systems And so it's possible for us to pass laws, and we're passing laws in communities that say, you know, when the government seeks to exploit those systems, um, there needs to be uh, safeguards in place, there needs to be a wall in place, so that those private systems can't bleed into the criminal justice system, can't result in more people being arrested and, and falsely accused of crimes they didn't commit. But it's interesting that, you know, you're basically saying we, we have more control over what's happening in, in, in the public sphere, the public use of facial recognition than the private. Uh, Rachel, no relation, writes, during the pandemic and meeting constantly through cameras as well as being recorded constantly at work, I worry about certain automated metrics being used as a form of performance review or on decisions of hiring, firing, and advancement. Uh, what 
protections can employees have uh, from the use and abuse of facial recognition in their workplaces? Tracy? Yeah, that's a that's a huge concern as these sort of black box algorithmic formulas, you know, increasingly are being used to determine who gets a job, who gets promoted, who can access a loan or business capital. It affects your credit reports. And there is a bill in the California state legislature this year. It's called Assembly Bill 13 by uh, Assemblymember Ed Chow from Southern California that at least talks about, as Dale had um, earlier referred to, getting some transparency about how these formulas are being used and making private employers and tech companies and entities that are using them, banks and insurance companies, uh, you know, publicly reveal what they're doing, what kinds of algorithms they are using and to audit them for what we would call disparate impact, which is an outsized um, influence that is basically showing that the software is tagging often in correctly marginalized and targeted communities to excess. So this kind of transparency is sort of the first step because as anybody would say, you can't solve a problem until you can identify it clearly. And as long as these sort of algorithmic decision-making processes are a black box. It's very hard to sort of take action to correct them, to mitigate their use, or to throw them out in the garbage can, whatever is, is appropriate. But we have to measure, we have to understand, and there has to be both public and private transparency. Mike tweets, greater accuracy of facial recognition is even worse. Imagine a world where one can no longer be anonymous and is always being placed in a virtual lineup in the name of safety. I'll just let that comment stand as we go now to the phones again and Mark in San Francisco. Yes, hello. Um, Is it true that these technologies are looking at at our eyes also and and at our retinas. And these are things that don't change. Uh, It seems like depending on the direction I look when I turn on my phone, it either recognizes me or does not. Uh, Brian or Dan, who who wants to take that one on? Um, So the history of of facial recognition technology goes back uh, many decades to the 1960s, and there were early attempts that really focused on uh, particular identifiers, trying to map eyes, ears, nose, and and, and mouth. Uh, But the kind of revolution in computer vision that has really fueled these kinds of algorithms over the past 10 years uh, really is no longer uh, sort of uh, isolating uh, particular features quite in the, the same way. Um, though I think the caller may be referring also to the fact that there is retina scan uh, technology that, for instance, has been used uh, for, for border control. If I could make one more point, I think there's general agreement here on this panel about just think the real risks in the kinds of Uh, contexts uh, that uh, law enforcement poses. One of the challenges raised by a number of the questions that go to private use of facial recognition technology is that the technology is uh, general purpose. We have the same underlying computer vision technology used to unlock your iPhone as it could be used, um, for instance, to identify uh, uh, domestic terrorists. Um, And so that is what is one of the big challenges, I think, in terms of regulating. If you look at the proposed EU uh, legislation, 
Um, it kind of uh, both says there should be no real-time use of facial recognition technology by law enforcement, but also makes exceptions for terrorism investigations, missing children identification, and public safety emergencies. And so uh, there is at least uh, some uh, uh, disagreement as manifested therein uh, between the kinds of uh, use cases that may actually uh, uh, be beneficial as well. Well, I'm going to have to leave it there. This has been a fascinating as well as troubling conversation about facial recognition technology with a a terrific panel. Let me just mention who they all are. Matt Cagle, technology and civil liberties attorney with the ACLU. Brian Hofer, chair and executive director of Secure Justice. Tracy Rosenberg, advocate with Oakland Privacy and executive director of Media Alliance. And last but not least, Dan Ho, Stanford law professor and Associate Director at the Stanford Institute on Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Thank you so much for being with us, and stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.